0: Only from Rustolium. Hello and welcome to Culture Lab from New Scientist Podcast. I'm Christy Taylor. This is the show where we feature science-adjacent and science-influenced stuff in the world of arts and culture. This week, TV columnist Beth Ann Ackerley speaks with the naturalist Chris Packham. His new television series is about the history of our planet and it begins airing next week. Their conversation touched on what viewers can expect when the series, called Earth, kicks off, but also what he's learned from his decades of work sharing science with the public. So Chris, if you could tell us a little bit about uh, your new series.
1: The series is really exciting. It's a biography of our planet. It's not chronological, so we don't start with the formation of of the planet, uh, but we cherry-pick the most important parts of its biography, if you like. So it would be its first step, its first word, its first kiss, its first (laughs) marriage first divorce, second marriage, whatever it happens to be. So we choose those points. And we've been very much driven by some of the more exciting new science as well. So that's, uh, you know, facilitated our our choices when it comes to what we've included. It's broken down into five programs. The last one looks at principally the human impact on the planet. Uh, I think by that stage people should have an appreciation of the fact that it's a very special place, unique, of course and in that program we look at the impact that we've had in a very short space of time because obviously the, the history of our planet spans you know 4.5 billion years we face some real challenges. Time is one of them. You know, we're quite good at measuring things in minutes or months, but we're not very good at measuring them in millennia, let alone millions or billions of years. So we've tried to make sure that some of the things that we've included have a a sort of a contemporary relevance. They're part of something that people can imagine. And when that's beyond our scope, I'm pleased to say we've got some sensational visual effects which we've got interwoven and they are very, very beautiful as well as being informative.
0: So you're obviously best known as a naturalist. Um, so why were you drawn to working on a project about you know, the history of our natural world?
1: The best bit of my job, people always imagine, is like meeting animals firsthand, getting up close to things, visiting habitats where they exist, so on and so forth. It's great, but it's not the best. The best bit is that my life has been a lifelong learning experience. I go out every day and sometimes face-to-face, I meet scientists and they tell me things that they're passionate about, they, they're they researching, they tell me their ideas, and, and it's an infectious environment and I find that really, really stimulating. So here's a program which is like almost sort of 50% Chris, the life bit of it. The planetary processes, I mean, I did my GCSE in geology way back in the 1970s and I read your magazine and I read all of those sorts of things, but I hadn't integrated the two together. I think what particularly interested me is that I'm far more interested in the bigger picture complexity. I like the detail, of course, but I like knowing how things work, not just as, say, a single organism, but as an ecosystem or in the case of our series here, that the planetary ecosystem. And I was very surprised how much interplay, significant interplay, there'd been between planetary forces, essentially abiotic physical forces, and life throughout its history, and how life had also influenced those forces. And there's been this constant sort of juxtaposition, roller coaster, um, since life first afe- appeared on our planet a very long time ago, as, as we know. And so, yeah, it was fascinating. I learned a tremendous amount. It was a, an, a stimulating environment to be in. And I think that the other thing is that there's a lots of exciting new science, basically, things which will prick up the ears of our viewers, and they'll be very much surprised by it.
0: So you mentioned that it is full of, of this relatively new science and the, the areas where things are maybe a little more murky and we don't quite know what has happened. Why did you think it was important to in- include that sort of development?
1: Well murky science is is always tricky but it's nevertheless interesting there's a foundation of truth in there somewhere someone's got some data they've seen an opportunity and they've they've got that data and they've come up with an idea and i think that that's pretty much how science starts isn't it really we are learning a lot more a lot more quickly about earth science due to technologies that we have of course but nevertheless as you say there are sometimes Instances where there is either they've got the germ of an idea and it may well be the case or there are two sets or three sets or more scientists and they've all got different ideas. And our role is to speak to all of these people and come up with the one that we think is best. But even then, we say, this might be the best idea at the moment, but there are other ideas, it's work in progress. And we do, at the end of each one of our programmes, include a very brief section where scientists get to speak to camera, which is great because I think they need a profile. I'm excited by science and scientists, and I, I think that you know it's all right having communicators like myself, but sometimes you should hear it from the horse's mouth, quite literally. And so they come in at the end and we deal with a few specific issues that we've integrated in, in our programme. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there were so many truths that I learned as a kid. I mean, E might still equal MC squared, but there were lots of things that I learned about some of the species that I encountered when I was a a kid, which are no longer fact, you know, and and I'm excited by that. Perhaps the most dramatic example is, um, T-Rex, you know, when I was a child in the 1960s, T-Rex was brown or green. It dragged its tail. It groaned and moaned. It walked and staggered, actually, really slowly. And it looked like a giant iguana. Now, I'm 61 years old. That animal has completely changed in terms of what we know about it. So in my lifetime, T-Rex has changed more than it has in the last 65 million years. And that's brilliant. I love that.
0: So climate change is mentioned in the series, it's a a thread running through it, but it's not the sole focus of it by any measure. Is that an area you would like to to work in more with your work or or say with the biodiversity crisis? I mean, you've been very clear with your opinions on on these.
1: Yeah. So our programme deals with the Earth's history and throughout the course of that history, the climate has changed radically and sometimes with astonishing results the whole planet being frozen or the whole planet being you know extremely hot much hotter than it is today you know crocodiles alligators are close to the poles but these are changes that that occurred over invariably over millions of years not not 150 years so throughout the course of the program we give a nod to the fact that we as a species are having an impact on the planet now not just the climate but biodiversity too and in our final program when we're looking looking at human impact on the planet, then of course that comes to the fore. So we're really sort of setting that last program up all the way through and providing people with the opportunity to see how fragile the world is. And if sometimes just tiny things change, they can have enormous repercussions. So we mention it in passing and then we deal with it at the end. principally. I suppose we are dealing with climate, there is biodiversity uh, in in that mix as well. But ours is a programme about the joy of science, basically. And it's educational, it's visually exciting. And I hope people will enjoy it on that account. But underneath all of that, yes, there's a message there. And that is that we need to address this issue. And only in the very final part of the last programme do we offer people the opportunity to think about that more directly. And in terms of programs that I make, yes, I I do. I'm compelled with a a desperation. We're we're in a crisis position. You know, I've purged, you know, climate change is now not part of my vernacular. It's climate breakdown. That's what we're dealing with here. And when we talk about biodiversity loss, I'm slightly troubled by the word loss because we haven't lost these species. We haven't inadvertently left them behind the shed. We've destroyed them or we've destroyed their habitats. So, it's not a sixth mass extinction event that we're precipitating. It's a mass extermination event. And I think we have to be more precise about our language in that sense. So I think there's space for more programs which ask people to do it to address those things head on. But the fuel to get people to want to do that is that they have to have an affinity for it. And what our series here is about is getting people to have an affinity for the most wonderful planet anywhere. <laughs> Cause it's the only one we know that's got life on it and the fact that it's got life like us on it is astonishing absolutely astonishing and surely that alone suggests to people that we can't blow it we've got to get things right at this critical time
0: You've obviously spent some time delving into the past while making this series, beyond the sort of immediate term of of the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis. um, What do you envision for the future of Earth, you know, maybe in the next millennia?
1: Well, what I like is life. I like life itself more than I like human life or any other species life, to be quite honest with you. And and again, what this series shows uh, without any ambiguity is the tenacity of life, life just wants to prosper and will overcome enormous almost seemingly insurmountable problems in in order to do that it's so hard to extinguish all life yes we've had mass extinction events but something's got through and it will get through again so whatever we do to this planet what is most heartening to people like myself is that there will be another chapter in this remarkable history. And there will be new species, maybe completely different. And again, when we look back through our five programs at the way that, you know, species composition has changed uh, and species have come and gone, not just individual species, but the very structure, if you like, the simple structure of those environments and ecosystems is so radically changed that I would, you know, give anything you know, to be able to have a time machine for an afternoon and go far into the future to see what comes next. Because whatever happens, something will come next. I just don't want the embarrassment of, you know, humankind precipitating that. You know, it's all right if uh, an asteroid hits or there's an enormous amount of volcanic activity. That seems justified. But we as a conscious organism precipitating that type of event isn't consumable from my perspective, which is why I would rather do something about it.
0: You're able to be quite positive about the sort of the future of Earth and and the trajectory that we're on? Where does that come from for you?
1: I'm positive because I know that life will survive and that's heartening for me. I'm positive because I think there's still time for humans to have some sort of life on this planet. We can adapt, we can do positive things even at this very late stage. If we don't do them, life will be abjectly miserable or terminal for humanity and none of us wants that. And from my point of view, it's just—it's not just about humanity. It's about all of that other life. It's about those ecosystems, which ultimately we are a part of, and certainly dependent upon, because if they fail, then we will fail. So, you know, it's about fixing, it's not just us fixing us, it's about us fixing everything. And we, we, we'd certainly have a toolkit with plenty to get going, when it comes to addressing that. What gives me real concern is just the lack of activity, is the lack of urgency. I'm kind of hopeful outside of that. What depresses my hope is the fact that this message is not new. It's been featured in your magazine for goodness knows how many years, goodness knows how many issues, and we're still not doing enough, rapidly enough to address those. One of the covers of your recent magazines is 1.5's Gone. Now, I remember 1.5 being a viable goal. That, wasn't, that was tens of years ago. Not hundreds or millennia, but tens of years ago. And we failed to do that. And I, I'm not happy with that. I feel guilty that I've failed you know, to, to motivate people to make that difference. So this is a time where we really do have to step up. You know, we've got to watch the program, generate that affinity, you know, uh, read your magazine to, you know, to update the science. And then we've got to act, we've actually got to do something to make a difference. And that's what's missing at the moment, everything else, well not everything, but a lot of other things are there in place. It's just that desire to act that's missing.
0: So being able to work outside of uh, your, your principal area of, you know, the natural world as, as we see it today, what was the most edifying thing that you, you got from that experience?
1: I think, for me, entirely selfishly, it's about those little things that tickle my fancy, you know, which stimulate a sense of um, romance. I think, you know, it's going to be controversial, but I think romance has a role to play in, in science, you know. So, in, To the extent that, for me, science has always been the art of understanding truth and beauty. And the key words apart from science in there are art, truth and beauty. And sometimes, therefore, when I see something which is just quintessentially beautiful, I can find that as stimulating as something that, which is artistic or scientific. And I don't feel bad about that. For me, it's a fuel. And there were a couple of times in the, in the programme and I just f- touched something, fossils, meteorites, something like that, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, something which is completely intangible, the idea of the other side of the universe, pretty intangible. But then you've got a bit of it in, in your hands. I mean, I just really light up with that sort of stuff. In one of the programs we had a, a, a fossil and it had one of the very first flowers. And, and it, I mean, it was an inconspicuous little moat on a piece of uh, a rock from North America. I just sat there waiting to do the filming and I was just looking at it and there's all these fabulous flowers around us where we were filming. This is one little st- you know, cross-shaped flower stuck in that rock. But the importance of that evolutionary development was utterly overwhelming, you know, and the fact that you could sort of touch it with your, well, not eat, but you know, touch that that mark with your finger, I, I I find those sorts of things, you know, aside from the excitement that I get from new discoveries, uh, I, I find those sorts of things incredibly uplifting, basically.
0: Do you think if people have a greater understanding of how the sort of natural features around them have formed and on these sort of grand geological timescales, do you think that will help them have a a greater sense of urgency when it comes to things like the climate crisis,
1: things that are desired not to lose? Well, I hope that what they see in our programme is that those things are are largely impermanent. I mean, I think that one of the problems is people look at a mountain and they imagine the mountain has always been there. I mean, when I say always, I mean millions of years billions of years, and they think it will always be there. But of course, it, it's new. You know, most of our surface is, 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 is relatively new, certainly in, in terms of its topographical shape, even its geographical whereabouts. I and mean, we deal with two supercontinents in our, in our series. You know, we've got Pangaea and, and Rodinia. And the lack of permanence and the fragility is another thing I think people need to take away from, from this series. The wonder and the singularity of this you know remarkable place, but also the fragility and and the and the impermanence we we've just been here for a tiny amount of time in this remarkable history, and we ought to appreciate that a lot more than than we do I think
0: which of the episodes were you most interested in working on you You go from some various different points in the history of earth uh, you jump between them. How did you formulate? how are you going to split those up?
1: We took the, the biggest, most impressive ideas that we could back up with good science as a starting point. And we could have done a lot more about the very ancient earth, billions of years. But we've concentrated, I suppose, more on the, on the relatively more you know, contemporary, but still millions of years, e- e- end of, of things. And we're very keen to, you know, get that mix of life and the abiotic planetary factors involved. And of course, although life appeared very early on in the Earth's history, it was kind of stuck for, for a long time, not doing very much. So I think that Im- influenced us. There's, 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 no doubt about that from a personal point of view. It's always about the new, new things. Sorry. It's, it's the new ideas and the things I don't know. That's always the most exciting things. You know, that's what i like. If I open something in, and read in your magazine and it's something that I know 60% of, it's never as good as if I open something and find something that I never knew about before. That's what I'm going to be telling my partner when I get home. Hey, look at this. So I'm, I'm always stimulated by those. Uh, the final programme, obviously, with the human impact, has a, a, a vocational interest as we're all keen to address that issue as urgently as possible. And this was a, an opportunity to draw people's attention to the fact that, you know, we are having a very significant and, and rapid impact on, on the planet. So it was, that was important to me from that point of view. Um, ever since I was a kid, I was—I've always been enraptured with the um, with cave paintings. I'm, I'm, I'm into art, and it's really interesting the way that you know we started to get to that point of making two-dimensional images. You know, and I've always wondered what what happened neurologically. You know, when we went from sculpting, maybe, but then we could do that. So something changed perceptually in in, in our brains, and then we had a need to do that. And there's a mystery as, behind all of it. So cave painting has always been part of my thing. You know, so when I left. At college in the 1980s, I made a piece of cave wall. It's hanging on in in the living room of my house. Someone remarked upon it yesterday, said, well, how's that? And and I made this piece of cave wall. And during the course of my life, I've done different cave paintings on it. It's white at the moment, because I moved and it got a bit broken. So I've had to replaster it and it's repainted white. And I'm going to be doing some more cave paintings on it. We got to see those cave paintings. I went into a cave and I saw them. And I can't tell you, it was just so absolutely amazing. It was in January of this year. And I got home and I was just like floating around for ages. You know, I didn't want to do anything else other than think about those paintings. Mm -hmm. Because again, I have to say there's that certain sense of romance. You know, standing there in the dark, deep inside a mountain, where 13,000 years ago, another human that looked exactly like we do, you know, was in there making those beautiful drawings was just sensational and perfect for us to choose as a a very iconic moment when it came to humans changing what they were capable of and how that would have an impact on the modern world.
0: Thank you so much. That's beautiful. And what a lovely note to end on. Thank you. That was our TV columnist Bethann Ackerley talking to naturalist Chris Packham about his new series about the history of planet Earth. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture Lab from New Scientist Podcasts. I'm Christy Taylor. If you enjoyed this, subscribe to our feed so you don't miss other great interviews like this. Bye for now.
1: This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.